Lover of all things lit, professional reviewer, recommender, book blogger. I am your host, Lloyd Russell, aka The Book Sage, and you're listening to Lit with Lloyd, courtesy of KCAT Radio. Welcome to Lit with Lloyd. I am your host, Lloyd Russell, uh, and I want to give a special thanks to KCAT for sponsoring our show. Uh, today, we have a, uh, a real treat. Uh, we have Gail Carriger here. She is an award-winning author and a New York Times best-selling author. Uh, and uh, we are very pleased to have her. Welcome, Gail, and thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Good. And that was our studio audience. And maybe they could even clap once more and, and uh, emit a few vocals. <laughs> All right, I think we've got them ready. Yes. <laughs> All right, here is my first question to you. How did you go from archaeologist to novelist? <laughs> <laughs> oh, in, in uh, five words or less. Um, with strange reluctance and, uh, <laughs> and a lot of serendipity and luck. Uh, no, I've always written, I've always enjoyed writing a lot, but I did grow up in a sort of commune slash off-grid kind of rural environment surrounded by poets. And so I thought the one thing you could never make money off of was writing. <laughs> so that would be a <laughs> terrible career path. Um, I also really love history and I love like the physical handling of history and really being in and understanding it from the ground up. Uh, so I thought archaeology would be great. And uh, I was young when I made that decision and just mm. stuck to it. Stubbornness is one of my traits. Uh, so yeah, so I thought I was always, I always thought I was going to be an archaeologist. And I, I still have great love for it and miss it on occasion. Um, and then about halfway, a little over through my PhD, um, I just kept trying to get books published. And, uh, and Solus got published. And then Changeless hit the New York Times. And suddenly... I was faced with a choice. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, do you still practice any archaeology? <laughs> right up. But this is a thing happens in academia where you become a very precise and focused expert on one thing. Uh, so right up until about five or six years ago, occasionally I would still get a phone call that would be like, we think we have a kiln. You, can you drive down and take a look at this <laughs> historical site or something? Um, and so, yeah, I was still tapped into it, and I'm I'm still friends. But my professor retired recently, and so now I kind of don't really have any many contacts left in the field. Okay, so uh, I tried to count the a number of books that you've written. <laughs> Oops. Uh, and I was somewhere in the neighborhood of fifty. Is that is that somewhat <laughs> accurate? No, you're actually making me sound a little bit more efficient than I am. Uh, I think at last count it was more like thirty. Uh, but I have different editions and versions and things like that, and, and collections and stuff. Okay, and novellas and things. And short yeah. stories and stuff, yeah. Exactly. Okay, yeah. all right. So let's let's go back to the beginning of your writing career. How did you get published? How did Soulless get published? It's one of those stories you don't really get anymore, actually. I was a slush um, submission, which basically means I cold gave my manuscript to publishers in New York. Uh, I just sent, I just mailed a physical huge copy of my manuscript into those few publishers who were still taking open submissions. I don't think any do anymore. Um, and I literally, I was actually at Great Bear Coffee House and I got a telephone call from a 212 number, which is New York, that basically said, 
I read your book pulled out of the slush pile and I love it and I want to publish it. Wow. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, yeah. I mean, mostly, mostly we hear about uh, authors having agents. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then I had to get an agent. <laughs> then I was like, oh, right. Uh, now. So I went about it a little backwards. Um, but yeah, I did. I did. I basically had an offer on the table when I was looking for an agent. Fortunately, I'd sort of been in and out of like, learning about how New York and the publishing industry worked. And so I kind of knew what I was supposed to do next. And I had my eye on an agent who I really, really liked, who had actually rejected me for a different project. Um, And I pinged her over the Christmas holidays. uh, And she got back to me in person herself and said, I'd love to represent you. And she's been my agent now for almost 15 years. Wow. Yeah. The same agent. Same agent. Really lucky. It is like a marriage when you have a literary agent, and I'm very lucky in that marriage, I have to say. Yeah, she's wonderful. Kristen. Kristen Nelson. Wow, that's fantastic. Uh, How many different publishers have you had, or or just one? A lot. Um, Well, I've always been under the same umbrella house, not by... not by preference, although it has worked out in my favor, uh, but I have had two publishing houses within the house. So my umbrella company is called Hachette, and the two publishers I've had are Little Brown, Books for Young Readers, which is my YA series, and Orbit, which is my adult sci-fi fantasy series. Uh, And then I've also worked with a small press called Subterranean that does sort of fancy dancy special editions and stuff, and a a few others, like different audiobooks and, you know, all sorts of things like that. Uh, and and when you when you have a, a new book coming out, do you go to the same publisher? Do you? Ooh, if, that's you, a loaded question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, or do you put it out there for uh, you know for the, the grabs? It really depends. Um, so from the technical standpoint, I'm out of option with my house these days, which means I get to submit to anybody I want to. I don't have to give any house a priority, publishing house a priority anymore. But I actually pivoted about six or seven years ago towards self-publishing because mm. I really wanted to experiment with things that traditional publishing isn't really interested in, um, different sort of subject matters, different genres for me, like science fiction or um, urban fantasy or romance and um, and standalones and novellas, different lengths that, that in general New York doesn't like or really know what to do with and so that meant learning how to self-publish and then self-publishing so I do a lot of that now Um, I did just have a project that I took out to submission which basically means I basically give it to my agent and said agent see if anybody is interested (laughs) Um, and nobody was so I was like all right I'll do it myself Speaking of, of your different genres and uh, keeping in mind that we only have 30 minutes total okay how many genres have you written in? That's, that's, <laughs> that's easier. Um, putting aside the short stories, which I, I don't think really count, uh, it's just really three. I basically have three universes that are loosely connected that I play in. My original universe, which I call the Parasolverse, which is steampunk, which is essentially sci-fi, fantasy, all history. I throw in some mysteries, some comedies of manners, a couple of other things, <laughs> lots of humor when I write. Um, so that's one is steampunk, and that's a science fiction and fantasy genre, basically. It mostly falls under sci-fi. And then I have an urban fantasy world that I write in, which is set in the modern day, but an alternate San Francisco Bay Area called the San Andreas Shifters series. Um, it, it's werewolves and vampires in the Bay Area, basically. Um, and then I have a science fiction universe that I'm really mostly excited about these days. 
Okay, but when you were talking earlier, uh, you mentioned a few different types of, of uh, genres. So mm. uh, are there other genres that you plan to write in? Ooh, well, I'm, I like, I'm a big, my first book, I thought, Soulless, I thought it would never sell because it was so many different genres kind of mixed up with each other. And traditionally, New York in particular doesn't like that because they didn't, they don't know how to market something that's like my book, which is essentially everything but the kitchen sink. <laughs> um, and I've sort of kept doing that. So I'll pick up something like urban fantasy, and then I'll throw a couple of things at it and play with it. Or, for example, the series that I'm going to have coming out this year is young adult space opera and that's just like there's no market for that but i can't help it i just have to write what whatever amuses me at the time so well we know that you have a large following uh, yes, correct they're, they're okay okay i love them so much <laughs> uh and and in fact um, a number of people who responded said that you're their her, their favorite author and so you're obviously well, well known and well received. Uh, when you go out to, when you send, give your agent a book, uh, and do you find that there are that there are several publishers that are vying for it, and uh, are they making offers and things? It well, it depends. Uh, so publishers are very are savvy to what they need to their own numbers in terms of what they have to sell to make a book profitable. Um, so when I do something like YA space opera for which there is no market, <laughs> um, even if it's me, they're not going to publish it. Um, and that's fair. Like I, I, I totally get that uh, because I do have a fantastic reader base. Uh, I know that I can publish it and it will all be fine anyway. Um, but if I wrote something that that was on point for the market right now, they, then yes, I probably would have a bunch of people vying for it. But I don't know that I necessarily want to do that. I want to write whatever. Um, at this point in my career, after you know, after twelve years, I, I want to write what I want to write. And <laughs> I know that if it's me, if it's my voice, if, if it has a lot of elements that my readers really love, which tend to be things like found family and queer representation, and you know. Just things that I call my books hugs. They're book hugs. They, they want I want my books to leave people smiling and with a sense of comfort, kind of like a hot water bottle or a fuzzy blanket <laughs> or something. Um, and so I know that if I deliver that, then my readers at least are going to be happy, and they're the ones I care about the most. Well, you know, I, I've been told that the the big advantage of having a publisher, a publishing house, is is the scope and and you know the, their following, but. Since you have so many followers, it, it almost seems like it doesn't make that much sense to go to a publishing house. It really, like I said, it really depends on the project. And sometimes it depends on like my kind of curiosity about what's going on in the industry. So New York is very strange right now, uh, the publishing industry. There, <laughs> there's a strike going on. There's a lot of stuff happening. Um, and so I submitted this most recent series mostly just to see what kind of responses I was getting these days. And of course, if somebody really wanted it, I, I, I would have gone in with good faith to negotiate. But I was just sort of like, well, what is what do they think the future of the book industry is right now? Like, what do they think of a project like this? And I got a lot of very positive responses. A lot of um, editors, acquiring editors, still like kind of my voice and my style and the comforting nature of it. 
but a lot of them also were like, we can't see us as a large publisher making a profit on a book like this. So I thought that was, it was interesting for me um, because I do straddle these two worlds. I straddle the traditional publishing world and the indie publishing world. And um, I'm always interested in how they cross over. Yeah. But to sort of answer your question from the core, like I am entirely aware that because of when my first book was published, which was way back in 2009, and because of when those books became super popular, which was in the you know 2010s kind of thing, um, that really gave me a platform. Um, and I happen to be savvy enough to, you know, capitalize on it, partly because I accidentally on purpose, I'm not sure, uh, basically wrote books that went out there and found my people, like people I was like, oh yeah, like we would go shopping together, we'd hang out and have tea together, like all of my readers, like I, I can always spot my readers at events when I, sh you know, like, I'm like, oh yeah, that, that's my signing line, like they're chatting with each other, they're dressed beautifully, I'm like, those are my people, <laughs> you know, um, so yeah, so like my my books very much and my style of writing books certainly works in my favor in regards to building a community. That's for sure. Yeah. This is a question I've never asked an author. Um, just it just came to me. If you self-publish, is there still a possibility that it can be a New York Times best-selling, or does that have to go through a traditional publisher? There are ways to hack the list, but then somebody becomes savvy, hacks it, and then New York Times closes that gap. Um, it is very, very difficult. I mean, you do get things like The Martian, for example, which was a self-published book that then got a movie deal that then hit the, the, the list and stuff like that. Um, but it's it's very difficult to do just because the way the engine is set up um, in terms of distribution and wholesaling and stuff like that. So I, I, it's very hard to do. You yeah. can make the um, USA Today list much easier, mm. um, but the New York Times is pretty impossible to crack, I think, these days. Without a publisher. Mm. Um, are all your books in ebook and audio? Yeah, I work really hard to make sure things get into all three formats, so print, ebook, and audio. Audio sometimes takes a little bit more time just because it's expensive to um, hire a professional narrator. And it just takes time to get it through the QA process, you know, quality assurance in terms of like making sure the sound is good and all that sort of stuff. So audio is sometimes a little bit delayed. But frankly, my audio was delayed with my traditional publisher for the first couple of books <laughs> as well. Um, so that's not uncommon. Um, but yeah, I do try some of the shorter works and some of the, I, I do occasionally drop like special extra bits that's just like directly for my newsletter subscribers, for example. And those don't always make it into audio simply because the format is too weird. It's not really a story, so to speak. Do you have um, default um, cover um, cover people and, yeah. and narrator people? Yeah, well, that's the interesting thing about going independent is that you do have you do end up with a team of and it's not just cover art designers of which i have a couple now and i just i just am negotiating with an illustrator for the first time i've never had an illustrated cover before but so i'm going to be working with a professional artist for my next series that's kind of exciting um but there's also i need a, a editorial team in place i am not an author who believes that i can self-edit myself so i have to hire a developmental editor and then i also have to hire I um, copy editor and occasionally I'll even get a proof editor or a historical copy editor as well if it's one of the steampunk books because I do try to make my Victorian bits accurate <laughs> um, which means I need a, an editor who specializes in that time period 
I also um, will hire sensitivity readers if I'm writing characters that are not my my identification. Um, so yeah, it does get expensive. <laughs> there yeah, is a whole yeah, team yeah. in place. Uh, but I kind of like that aspect. I kind of um, I don't like it when they leave me for for, for, for more fertile fields or or they leave the <laughs> industry in general. Then I'm like, oh God, oh no, I need to find a new developmental editor at the moment. So I'm like, oh, crisis. <laughs> um, but I'll find someone. It'll it'll happen. Uh, another question I've never asked an author before: uh, How do you decide when to write novels and when to write novellas? Mm. And do you have any novellas that there are their own series? Or are they also are they always part of a of a novel series? Ooh, that's really interesting. That's complicated. Um, in my case, it's I'm not a very fast author. I know it seems like it because I have so many books, but <laughs> <laughs> by um, indie book standards, I'm, I'm relatively slow. I can write usually about one novel and maybe one novella and one short story a year. That's about the maximum I could possibly do. Um, and of course life always derails you on occasion. Um, so in my case, it's kind of a matter of like, what do I feel like writing? What do I, so I have these three different kind of sandboxes that I play in and I try to put something out in each one of those sandboxes kind of in rotation. So that, that plays into Uh it. Um, for me, writing novellas was my entry into self-publishing because it was not, they were not under option for the universe for which I was best known, which is the steampunk one. Um, and so writing novellas was out of contract for me. So I could write novellas right away. And so I did. Uh, I tend to use novellas to write sort of standalone pieces that of like side characters or little concepts that I really want to explore that are within a greater established universe. That tends to be how I approach those. So I have novella series, but they're each sort of standalones with crossover characters that are kind of linked to each other. Um, so you could pick up any one of those novellas and it would introduce new characters, but it would be in a universe where some of the side characters maybe are old friends or familiar, that kind of thing. Um, generally speaking, if I'm doing a new universe, it'll be something novel length or longer. Yeah. Educate us on the range of pages for <laughs> short story, novella, and novel. <laughs> <laughs> it really depends on what genre you write in. Uh, so the romance genre, generally speaking, has shorter word lengths, and of course, so does young adult. Um, and then the uh, science fiction and fantasy genre has sort of traditional word lengths that are kind of dictated by CEFWA, the Science Fiction Fantasy Writers of America. So it, it sort of depends. I was raised in sci-fi fantasy, came up in the con scene, and so I tend to think in terms of what SFF talks about in terms of the length. So for me, anything under 50,000 words is a novella. Ah, uh, okay. Anything over 50, sort of 50 to 80 is sort of the gray area. And that used to be the provenance of pulps. So pulp, whether it's a mystery book or a sci-fi book or whatever, the pulps from the sort of 1940s, they were all around that length, 50 to sort of 60, 70K. Um, YA tends to be 70 to 90, and then, um, sorry, I'm speaking in thousand words, everybody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh, and then, sort of adult sci-fi fantasy ten, tends to be 90 to 120. 120 used to be the sort of original cap. Um, that's because 120,000 words sort of translates to 200, 250 pages, depending on how much dialogue you write. The more dialogue on the page, the longer the books seem, because they seem like they have more pages, because there's more space in them. They probably have fewer words. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and then, any, and that was because the, in the in the old days of like um, 
and of course I'm not I'm not clear on the history but so far as I can gather in the old days of of like pocket paperbacks and stuff um, a ream of paper for a printing press was a certain length and, and the cutoff was right around 150 to 250, 200 um, thousand, uh, pages and so after that it becomes epic territory and that's because when you have a book that's longer than a certain number of pages you have to literally change out the ream mm. and so it becomes that much more expensive to produce that book um, and so uh, I do not write epics, and I mostly don't enjoy reading them either. I, I am a big fan of concise writing, <laughs> which may surprise some people, <laughs> um, in terms of what I like to read, which is one of the reasons I enjoy young adults so much. As a genre, it tends to be relatively um, brief, and you sort of have to get to the point quickly. And I, I really like the pacing of YA in particular as a genre. So I tend to use a lot of kind of YA pacing tricks um, and dialogue, and uh, my stuff is very dialogue heavy uh, because I do write essentially comedies of manners. So, like, something will explode and then everybody runs around and then sits down and has tea and talks about it. Um, so, action driven is, is not my strength. <laughs> uh, so, I do have to worry about pace quite a bit. And so, reading genres where pacing is extremely important, like young adult, definitely informs, informs my stuff. So, you're not going to be reading Ken Follett anytime soon. I'm afraid not, no. <laughs> I'm sorry to say that. <laughs> uh, how many languages are your books typically in? I think we might have just, I used to say with relative confidence 18, but I just sold into Persian or Farsi. And so I think we're probably more like 20 different translations at this juncture. And who, who finds those people to put them into different languages? <laughs> I have a foreign agent. Oh, okay. So uh, my literary agent always you're, generally speaking, your literary agent should either have a foreign agent department or they pair up with a foreign agent um, or multiple different foreign agents, depending on how wide they rep. Um, so, yeah, I have, a, I have a foreign agent who handles that for me, including for my independently published stuff. So the language that I just sold into, uh, Persian, is actually my nonfiction book that, that got that pick up. So that's very exciting. Tell us about the nonfiction book. Ah, okay. <laughs> I I really um, as a as a writer, I'm a really social writer, which I know is is unusual for us authors. I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit to being a tiny bit of an extrovert. Um, <laughs> yeah, so the I, audience I think is fine with that. <laughs> so I do a lot of events, um, especially at the beginning of my career. I did a ton of events. I used to do book tours and stuff like that quite a bit because uh, I like meeting people and I love traveling. Uh, and so where was I going with this? Ah, uh, where was I going with this? Help me here, Lloyd. <laughs> we were talking about the different languages. Different languages. Oh, nonfiction. Nonfiction, non thank you. Yes. Yes. Um, sorry, flipping <laughs> back around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I needed help too. <laughs> so uh, back to the original beginning of the interview, um, I have a background in archaeology, which when you're an undergraduate in archaeology is a multidisciplinary field most of the time, which means I had to take classes in lots of different departments. Um, and one of the departments I really loved was the classical class or the classics department. Um, so my, technically my uh, original degree is in classical archaeology. And one of the things I did in the classics department was focus on myth and narrative. As I, obviously I'm a writer also and I love that. I love the history, the far history of mythology and how it informs art, 
throughout history and now, but also uh, writing and and pop media and culture in general. So, um, and during that time, I studied the hero's journey, Joseph Campbell, which we talk about a lot. And I also studied the heroine's journey, which nobody talks about, but there is one. <laughs> um, and so when I was doing all of these events and panels and traveling, I would often talk about the heroine's journey because my books pull on the beats and narrative style of that more than they do the hero's journey. In fact, they don't really, uh, they're not really informed by the hero's journey at all. And people in the audience would always be confused and often the authors on the panel with me would be confused and someone would inevitably put out their hand and be like what is this heroine's journey which you so casually mentioned gail <laughs> and i'd be like well i'd point you at a book but there isn't one uh and it was definitely one of those things my very british mother is prone to saying she who spots the problem is responsible for the solution darling uh so finally i was like well no one's writing this book i seem to be the only one with the patch that's needed at this juncture it isn't my academic expertise but i have enough of a foundation of just loving this um this beat and being an academic so I, I do know how to write a nonfiction book um and so i and so i wrote the book uh, huh. basically and when did that get published that was a couple of years ago um i want to say 2019 uh-huh um yeah and it's basically it's basically a toolkit that for to train people to identify the heroine's journey as it exists in narrative and and movies and televisions and stuff like that um and also for writers if they would like to write it uh, specifically, if you find as an author or as a viewer or a reader that you, you're you not particularly attracted to the hero's journey and people talk about it all the time and you're like, well, that doesn't seem to be something that I am either writing or reading regularly. Um, I kind of wrote this book to be like, it might be because you're gravitating accidentally on purpose towards this <laughs> other narrative. Um, which is not to say there aren't even more alternatives, particularly from non-Western cultures and stuff. But uh, this is the one I was familiar with, and I was like, okay, I'm writing this book, um, and it's been really, it's been really well received so far, which for which I'm I'm very very grateful and somewhat startled. <laughs> <laughs> is there another nonfiction book in your future? I would have said no about six months ago, um, <laughs> but unfortunately, it seems like there is. Um, <laughs> Um, I am technically uh, what is called a hybrid author, which means I write both traditionally and indie or independently or self-published. And um, there's not a lot of information out there for authors like me who are interested in being both, uh -huh. um, particularly authors who have been traditionally published and would like to try self-publishing. Uh -huh. Uh, and there's a lot of information for authors who would like to traditionally publish or like to self-publish from the ground up, uh, but making this shift, and I know there aren't, probably aren't a lot of us, uh, but I find myself answering questions from authors a lot who'd like to f follow the sort of, um, I guess, model that I eventually <laughs> followed myself accidentally. <laughs> and so I'm gonna write that book essentially. Um, and it's, it's turning into a, um, textbook I'm afraid it's, it's getting very big um, but one of the joys of nonfiction um, is that I can put it down and pick it up again it's not a story so I don't get completely drawn into it and immersed in it so it kind of fits around other aspects of my life uh, comfortably and I can just drop it and then come back to it so right now it's been dropped because I'm working on fiction seriously focused um, so it, it's there it's waiting I don't know when it'll come out but unfortunately fortunately yes there's another nonfiction coming but it's completely different from the first one 
Tell us what happened in Australia with your Parasol series. I mean, was there something about a game and a convention? No? Uh-uh. Australia? <laughs> um, <laughs> she's scared. Um, uh, I thought I read on your bio that that um, that series was turned into some kind of game. It has been. I mean, I uh, I mean, it's not licensed. I but uh, people will approach me for like art, like role playing games and things like that, and and yeah. occasionally like uh, spontaneous one convention card games and things. So yeah, yeah, yeah that happens a lot. Um, my characters are very. Um, visual I don't I mean steampunk especially you know my, my first universe and so uh, and I'm an archaeologist so I tend to give characters objects that they're defined by so like my main character in the parasol protectorate series has a parasol which is sort of a Swiss army knife kind of parasol that has all these sort of gadgets and things in it um, and then my main character in my young adult series has a bladed fan she's an assassin character so I tend to uh, kind of give characters visual handles for lack of a better term it makes them very fun for people to cosplay and so they do a lot and um and so again one of the reasons like can, I, I can see my people at conventions is because they're dressed as my characters <laughs> on occasion <laughs> um but yeah so that that happens quite a bit in the steampunk world in particular um because obviously people who are into um, reading steampunk and dressing up as steampunk uh love creating attire that is that kind of goes with a theme yeah so i made up australia i don't know where i don't know where you pulled that it's certainly possible the books are definitely published in australia i've been to a couple of events down there no maybe that's what i read uh have you been approached by any tv or movie studios um, several times now, yes. Um, in fact, if uh, anybody is interested out there, you can Google Gail Carragher Film Option, and the most recent one will come up, but also me talking about that an option does not an actual movie make, because the Parasol Protector books in particular have been in and out of option on multiple occasions. I think this is my third or fourth option that I'm in right now. Um, and this one is with an animation studio, and I'm really, I'm really excited about it. Um, but... I am from Northern California, and Hollywood is in Southern California, <laughs> and therefore I am deeply suspicious <laughs> of everything to do with Hollywood. So um, in very short, don't bank on it. <laughs> Let me assure you that you are not the first or 10th or 20th author to say that there have been options, and it's, it's, it seems like it's so difficult to actually have that happen. They call it developmental hell for a reason. Uh, an author friend of mine once described it as somebody comes up to you and hands you a fistful of money and a puppy and then turns around and walks away. Uh, that's what a film option is like. You're like, what do I do with both of these things? <laughs> okay, well, um, we are now going to turn to the audience uh, and uh, let them ask you some questions. Yay, my favorite. Okay, good. <laughs> We have our first question uh, right over there. Hi, um, thank you for speaking with us. Also, I have a question regarding self-publishing. What is the process involved in doing that? Okay, um, logistical or emotional, <laughs> physical? <laughs> um, 
generally speaking, oh God, this is a doozy. Uh, for me, uh, the process involves having a finished manuscript first. Uh, there isn't much point if your book is not done. Um, and then I usually reach, start reaching out to all of my contract workers. So I'll reach out to my developmental editor and my cover art designer and my copy editor to try and get everything scheduled uh, because they are also busy people with lots of other authors who aren't me that they're looking after and taking care of. Um, and that sort of gives me a loose idea when I can put things kind of into production. So I'll know when I have a release date. Uh, I don't announce a release date for a book until that book is ready for pre-order. That's because I have such a rabid uh, base of readers who want to immediately order the thing once I've announced it. Um, and then, uh, and that's, so that's usually about 90 days before it comes out, I'll put the book up for pre-order. And then I tell, start telling everybody. Uh, I tell my newsletter and they get to see a, uh, the cover art first, for example. They get the pre-order first as well. They get everything first. Uh, they're special. And uh, yeah, and then I start you know, talking about it on social media, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if you mean sort of logistically, it involves a lot of creating accounts with vendors. In my case, because I come out of traditional publishing, I have to be something called wide, which means I can't publish my books exclusively to Amazon, even if I wanted to, which many self-published authors do, but I do not. So I put my books up on as many platforms as I can. And that's because my readers expect that of me because they found me on many platforms because I come from a traditional background. Um, and so that means I have multiple accounts with multiple different vendors. So I have to upload to all those different vendors for various reasons. Um, there are middlemen who will handle that for you and I do use the middlemen as well. And then for a print edition, I have to have an account, have to. I have an account with both Ingram and with Amazon for producing a print edition. So all of my print editions, there are two of them, uh, essentially <laughs> from two different printing presses. And then for me, for audio, I will reach out to my producer who I work with um, and tell him which narrator I would like for this book series. And so he'll reach out to the narrator to see if they are available and start the contract going and stuff like that. I pay extra for an audiobook producer who does all of my QA and stuff and, and um, finessing because I don't like to listen to my own books being read by anybody, even a professional. Um, it's a little bit like rereading one of my own books. I just hear flaws constantly and I just want to keep fixing stuff um, so I can't bear it so I have to put my trust completely in somebody into someone else and so I have a I have a producer for that not most indie authors don't most indie authors use um, like a royalty share option or something like find away voices to pair them up with a narrator my other thing is my mother is is British and my um my family is British. I spent quite a bit of time in the UK when I was a kid. That's the voice you hear when you read my steampunk stuff is my mother's voice. She read to me when I was a kid. Uh, everybody out there, if you would like your kids to be writers, read to them. <laughs> uh, read to them a lot when they're young. <laughs> uh, but uh, that means that I am very sensitive to mock British accents. So I require, if I have a British character as a main character, I require an actually British narrator, <laughs> not an American pretending to be British, because I can always hear them pretending. <laughs> okay, anybody else? Fabulous, thank you.
<laughs> I'm not going to stand up because I'm no taller standing than I am sitting. <laughs> It's really a pleasure to meet you. I wanted to ask you about um, social media. You have a rabid fan base, and you have your blog and your website, but um, things have changed since your first book came out. Sure have. Uh, exploded in the social media realm, and I kind of wanted to know if you feel like that has changed your voice or who you're writing for. Um, you mm. have a lot uh, more people informing in on what they do like and don't like about your work. So are you, um, are you writing more for your audience than you think you were when you started? Ooh, oh, good question. What a good question. That's really interesting. It has changed a lot. We're, we're talking about 15 years, pretty much. I should say to start that I came into being an author and being on social media enjoying it. And that's different from a lot of authors, I think. Um, I, I still like it. I, the, the, I like it in a way that like I wouldn't be on a platform if I didn't enjoy being there, which is why I'm not on TikTok. No offense to anybody who loves TikTok, but I, I really tried and I'm like, mm, short form video isn't for me. I don't consume reels. I've never been interested in, in that particular type of media. And it just means that it's not a playground I'm, I want to play in. Uh, so that's still my approach is I, I will sort of jump on a new social media platform and take a look at it and play with it and see if I like it and see if my readers are there and want to interact with me. Uh, but that is that is the thing I would say I did first and most and haven't changed about my attitude on social media, which is I am on social media platforms to interact with my readers, not with other authors, um, not with politics not with not with anything i'm not there to consume news i'm there purely for my readers so if they're there and they chat with me then that's what happens um so anything i post is only about things that pertain to what interests me and what what relates to my universe so if you follow me on twitter for example you will get a lot of tea and victorian outfits and um you know, I posted about being in a coffee shop recently, you know, stuff like that. Uh, and that's, and that has made in a strange way, sort of little micro safe spaces for me and for my readers in a, in a, in an odd way. I, I have a very popular Facebook group. It's now almost 40,000 people. Um, and I have moderators who are really strict and keep it, keep it fun and lighthearted. You know, like, like I said, my books are book hugs and I kind of want to make sure my social media presences are that way too. Um, I'm very block happy. <laughs> so if I get wigged out by anything, I'll just block, block them, uh, whoever they are. Because uh, I, I think it's important to protect myself as well, you know, as a, as a somewhat public figure. So yeah, I, so in that arena, it hasn't changed. In terms of sort of like where people are and where people react and, and talk, that has shifted quite a bit. I um, come from obviously an archaeology background. My, my first master's degree is an MS. I like the science and the statistical and the data analyst side of archaeology, and I apply that to my own career as an author. You have no idea how many spreadsheets I have, and they are all color-coded. I um, love organizing things. It's very strange and a creative, and I get it. I like to joke that I'm probably one of the only authors who actually reads her royalties from start to finish. Um, 
Hash at my my publishing house sends me a royalty report that is 72 pages long. Whoa. With graphs. Makes me very happy. Um, but also have caught mistakes. Uh, strangely <laughs> enough, always in the publisher's favor, those mistakes. <laughs> Shocker. Shocker. Um, yeah, so uh, so I actually like the data side. So I, I have watched the ebb and flow of things like uh, Facebook Zero when it was instituted in 2017, and then uh, recent updates on Facebook where they pretty much sort of throttled pages. For those of you who are not on the deep end of social media, you won't <laughs> have known this. Uh, but I watched it happen, and I watched everybody sort of shift over to my group. Um, I've watched twi Twitter attrition, <laughs> so I've watched my followers just decline on Twitter. That's been interesting. Uh, so, so I keep an eye on that side as well. To answer your question in terms of being informed, I think in the long run, what it has made me do is trust my reader base more than I maybe would have. I have a lot more faith in them. Um, and that's just because they followed me. Like, I, I wasn't sure they would, but they followed me when I tried a new genre, when I tried urban fantasy, when I tried writing higher heat romance, when I tried writing um, science fiction. Um, enough of them followed me to make it worth my while to keep going. Um, and so in a, in a way, they, they were telling me the reader equivalent of them trusting me. And so I feel more comfortable being more experimental, being a little bit more you with my voice into different genres that maybe I wouldn't have. I certainly wouldn't have, you know, even five or six years ago. Um, they followed me quite happily when I independently published stuff. And they'll, they'll do things like be perfectly happy when I produce a hilariously ridiculous book, which isn't really a book, it's just a collection of my favorite vampire character <laughs> handing out extremely bad advice <laughs> to readers who've questioned him over the years on my blog. Like I just collected all these posts and, and people are like, yes, we want to read that. We'll read that. Um, and I think that's, that's a result of having established these sort of little micro ecosystems that are, are trust based. Um, so for me, it's had very good repercussions, but I'm, I'm careful. Um, I'm, you know, I'm wearing stilettos and I'm taking very tidy <laughs> footsteps in these arenas. <laughs> okay, so thank you <laughs> for being here. Uh, that closes the book on our podcast for the day. I want to thank uh, KCAT again for uh, putting us on and, and giving us this fantastic uh, place to, to have the podcast and with a great crew. I want to thank Gail Carriger for uh, coming down here to spend time uh, with us here. That's greatly appreciated. I certainly want to thank the audience for their support and enthusiasm. Uh, and if you want to see this uh, podcast uh, or any others, you can go on uh, Lloyd.show uh, and it'll direct you to both uh, the video and the audio. Uh, so with that, uh, we'll see you next time. You just heard Lit with Lloyd here on KCAT Radio. Explore all our KCAT original programming at kcat.org slash radio.